Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. My name is Caitlin Stevens, a current PGY3 general surgery resident pursuant of plastic and reconstructive surgery, privileged to be joined by the Resident Review's own Whitney Lang, Duke Plastic Surgery resident, and honored to be guest moderator for this episode on Oncoplastic Reconstruction from a Breast Surgeon's Perspective. We are joined by Dr. Linda Dubay, a board-certified general surgeon who specializes in breast surgery. Dr. Dubay is well known for her leadership roles and training of Southeast Michigan breast surgeons, in addition to her active position in precepting residents and educating the future generation of breast surgeons throughout the Ascension Health System in Michigan. Uh, as we said today, we're going to be uh, trying to do something new with the series. We're going to bring guests, subspecialist surgeons who work closely with plastic surgery to delve deeper into their thoughts, perspectives, tips, and tricks, and recommendations to strengthen our working relationship and to optimize our understanding of reconstruction from a breast surgeon's perspective, which is obviously very important. Um, At the conclusion of this episode, we're really hoping that you have an enhanced understanding of what breast surgeons wish we as plastic surgeons knew uh, before we step into the operating room for our recon cases. At the very foundation of this episode, and really throughout all aspects of breast oncology, oncoplastic surgery, and reconstruction, is the knowledge needed to understand the anatomy pathophysiology of underlying disease processes. Given our limited time to discuss an incredibly broad topic, we do want to highlight a handful of additional episodes that we recommend referencing to help really bring this discussion full circle. So yeah, we've had a couple prior episodes on breast surgery and breast reconstruction, um, obviously from a plastic surgeon's perspective. On November 3rd, 2021, we had an episode on breast cancer which reviewed breast embryology, development, anatomy, benign breast disease, screening for breast cancer, staging, and treatment for breast cancer. On November uh, 3rd, 2021, we also had a brief episode on breast reconstruction, um, including the timing of reconstruction, implant-based and autologous options, alternate flaps, um, and revision surgeries. And then on January 5th, 2021, um, we had an episode on breast reconstruction that somewhat blended the discussion of the two previous topics. In addition, we've had a couple expert interviews uh, join us, including uh, Drs. Brown and Drs. Chang, who talked about oncoplastics. Um, Dr. Hollenbeck has joined us to talk about deep flaps, in addition to um, a pap flap episode by Dr. Chang, which was aired in October. So without further ado, we'd like to introduce our esteemed guest, Dr. Linda Dubay. Hi, Dr. Dubay. Hi, good morning. We are eager to learn from your experience and so excited that you could join us. Thank you for taking the time to offer a unique perspective for plastic surgeons through the eyes of a breast surgeon. Whitney, would you like to get us started? Sure. Thanks so much, Caitlin. Um, So before we get too far into this discussion, um, would you mind giving us just a really brief synopsis of your background and how you got interested in breast surgery? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, mine is a little bit of an atraditional way that I got there because um, I've been practicing for a long time, you know, almost 28 years. So in the beginning, they didn't really, breast surgery was not a very developed field at the time. And a lot of times they were combined with head and neck fellowships. And so I wanted something exciting. So I went into trauma. So I was a trauma surgeon for a few years, which ended up ha- helping me when uh, one of my plastic surgery fellows that was at the hospital that I was at, I was trying to convince her to go learn how to do deep flaps because that was in the 
infancy with uh, Robert Allen was a big early adopter for them. And so when she came back, she still felt very nervous doing, you know, harvesting in the internal mammary. So since I was comfortable in the chest, I ended up helping her in the very beginning to get her comfortable doing deep flaps. Um, but I also have a, a strong family history of breast cancer. I have two aunts, one that had breast cancer at age 29 and one at 32 that ended up passing away. So I've always had that interest. And with time, I would say, especially in the last 15 years, breast surgery has you know, really blossomed and the whole treatment of breast cancer has really blossomed. And um, you know, even surgical techniques, um, all the medications that are available now, and um, it's really become its field on its own. And it's very evidence-based, which drives me. I'm, I'm very evidence-based oriented. And like doing research, which there's plenty of that in breast. And if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about your weekly schedule, operative days, general patient population, and ultimately your role in coordinating assisting care with other oncology team members, hematology, oncology, nutrition, radiation oncology, and reconstructive surgery are all involved pretty early on, correct? Correct. So I work at two different facilities in a very different patient populations. Um, one of them is in a more affluent area with an ACS accredited uh, breast program. And um, that program, uh, we are very involved. Everybody's very involved. We have weekly breast tumor meetings and we'll discuss typically 15 to 20 patients every week. Um, and it's heavily attended um, by radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, plastic surgeons, uh, geneticists, our research team. It's associated with one of the major universities in the area as well. So that also we have the ability to have a multidisciplinary clinic. So patients um, in a setting of about a couple hours are able to meet all three of the physicians. The plastic surgeon is, isn't usually at that meeting just because of their schedules, but we also have a dietitian. We have a lymphedema specialist that comes and uh, measures the patient. We have someone from social work, both from a psychology standpoint, as well as from support for uh, finances and insurance questions. So it's a very well-developed program. Uh, and then I work at another facility where um, it's a different patient population, tend to be more obese and a lot of uh, smokers, uh, not as affluent. And so there's different challenges there. And there's uh, different challenges with the oncology team, uh, just trying to get them more organized. And that is part of what I've been working on is trying to get them towards the other program. Because I really see a difference in how the patients um, progress when they're escorted with a nurse navigator and are treated from day one. And it's well coordinated for them. Yeah. I think one of the things that's really struck me is really great hearing your story. Um, I actually originally started as a general surgery resident um, and have transitioned into obviously plastic surgery, but got interested in plastic surgery through the breast cancer patient experience. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, all of us have our different ways of getting to where we are today, Absolutely. but I know that you've spoken a lot about kind of, you spoke a lot about care coordination and how important that is for the breast cancer population, just given the number of people who touch that patient population and how much better their care can be when we do it in a coordinated fashion. So since many of our listeners are plastic surgery residents or junior faculty, what are your recommendations for both breast surgeons and for plastic surgeons to better optimize that relationship and make it fruitful for kind of both parties? I think it's very, very important to know the skill set of who you're working with. 
um, both for the plastic surgeons, looking at the breast surgeons and vice versa. You know, I've had the pleasure of working with a multitude of different plastic surgeons over the years, and they have different skill sets and different things that they're really good at. And like any field, you end up referring to certain ones based on what you think the patient would do well with. You know, I do have the one plastic surgeon that's extremely good at deep flaps and lymph node transplants for lymphedema, not the best at plastic surgery for implants, uh, in my opinion. And I have the exact opposite that I work with on the other end, extremely good with implants. So, and I think it's important if you, you know, and then I also went to another, started joining another facility and I didn't know anything about the plastic surgeons. So everybody thought I was just being social, but I'm actually in the room checking them out and seeing what they do and what they're good at. But the, what that translates into is I'm usually the first person who's seeing that patient. So I can set it up for the plastic surgeon to be successful or not successful. Because if I know their style and what they tend to do, I can give the patient a clue about some of that so that it feels comfortable when they're hearing it. You know, Because my plastic surgeons do very different things. Some of them go right to implants. Other ones only do expanders first if they're doing implants. So if I said one thing and the plastic surgeon does something different, then that already starts the plastic surgeon behind the eight ball because then they're asking questions of why don't you do this? Um, so I just think it's important that you know the skill set and they're collaborative in that way. I think that's a really important lesson um, that even we could learn as well to better uh, alert our breast surgeons as to the types of cases that we feel comfortable doing, the types of things that we're generally going to offer our patients that when they come in our door for the first time from the breast surgeon, at least we're kind of, we're at least somewhat on the same page before yeah. the conversation even starts. I mean, I'm certainly not going to tell them how the plastic surgery is done, but you know, I've worked with them long enough that I know which patients are likely going to do certain things mm-hmm. and so I can steer them that way and give them some advice. Yeah. I think that's very helpful. Yeah. And some of my plastic surgeons use the spy in the operating room and other ones don't. So I don't want to bring up something if that plastic surgeon is not going to be using that technology, Mm -hmm. just things like that. Building off of your experience, Dr. Dubé, what are the key aspects of breast cancer care that you wish plastic surgeons were more aware of? And if you could give our plastic surgery resident listeners any advice, what questions would you recommend that they're asking breast surgeons preoperatively and postoperatively? So I think there's a couple of components to that. One is about the patient. The other one is about what we tell them uh, and communicate with you. Um, I think there are some plastic surgeons that do this very well, but others that don't. You really need to understand the lifestyle of that patient. Because if some, you know, my first patient that I had go down to New York to get a deep flap early on, trained horses. So if she didn't want implants of any version, she also didn't want anything that was gonna affect muscles. So a deep flap was ideal and we didn't have that ability at my facility, so I sent her someplace. So I think you have to look at the needs of the patient first and foremost. Um, I think the other thing that needs to be communicated is, are they going to get radiation? It makes a big difference in what you do. You know, does the patient want to have large breasts if they currently have large breasts? How sold are they on their nipples? I mean, we do nipple sparing mastectomies, but they're not always the best surgeries for very obese patients. Um, There's lots of complications. And that's another thing, you know, their health issues, diabetes, obesity. Sometimes you need need to steer the patient into what's going to be successful for them, not necessarily what in their head looks the best um, because it can be 
lead them down a road of multiple complications that in the end, they're not gonna be happy with. Um, so I just think that communication about some of the health issues and the stage of the breast cancer, et cetera, are just really important as well to communicate. Gosh, I, I wish um, all of our community breast surgeons would do that. I think that um, we always sometimes are, you know, seeing patients who have unrealistic expectations um, about reconstruction, especially given their cancer, their need for radiation and a lot of other health issues. And um, it, we, we, as surgeons, I guess we always like to say yes to things and we like to say we have a solution, but sometimes we don't have always the best solution for people. <laughs> um, well, that, that way I can be the good cop, bad cop too, yeah. because I can bring down their unrealistic expectations ahead of time, you know, so that they're just happy with, I don't want to put it that way, that they, they're just happy with what they get, but it's that it's going to be a good outcome for them. Yeah. Their life is going to change if they get mastectomies and reconstruction, no matter what. It's just how can we make it look so that it is appealing to them. Right. Get them to the end of their cancer therapy and cancer treatment and that complications. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, those complications can affect their further treatment if they need more chemotherapy, et cetera. So it's just important that things go well as best as much as possible. Yeah. I I know that we talk a lot to our um, breast surgery colleagues about our mastectomy patients, obviously, because those are the ones that we generally see and share with the breast oncologist. But I know that you know, increasingly we're starting to see, um, more and more patients come to us after breast preserving cases. Um, so in your hands, where do you think that oncoplastic techniques are best used in these patients? And what do you think are some really important considerations for patients that are undergoing breast conserving therapy, um, but may end up having a, uh, aesthetic outcome that they don't necessarily aren't necessarily happy with. So again, this comes into the skill set of the breast surgeon as well. Uh, I can't tell you how many oncoplastic courses I've had. And I've gotten to the point where I'm comfortable with certain things and I'm not comfortable with other things. And um, the things that I am comfortable with, and you just have to, when you look at a patient, plastic surgery does this better than I think the breast, but you got to be thinking about what is that going to look like and how tonic are their breasts and what do you have to work with? Um, And so there are certain procedures, including mastopexies and bat wing mastopexies and things like that, that I feel comfortable with. Um, There's other things that I'm not, but I know that they would do really well with the combined with the plastic surgeon. Um, But there has to be enough for us to do that. Um, The other thing is that even though we're not talking about that, Biosorb has been a little bit of a game changer as well. Um, I'm not sure if everybody's familiar with that, but it's, um, they come in different sizes and shapes, but they're typically more of a spiral type dissolvable material that has some markers in it. And it acts like a filler temporarily. And they're ideal for people that have, um, that are getting localized radiation. So in our center, we do uh, only five sessions of radiation over 10 days. And it's just directed where we put the biosorb. Um, and so what that, and it, because it takes a couple of years to dissolve, it forms this little bit of a scar shell. So it will maintain a shape in some of these smaller breasts that you really don't have much to deal with. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things I've learned about that, you know, not putting it too close to the skin. I mean, there's, you know, some of the things we can't talk about today, but there's good patients that that's all you need to do. And other ones that are going to look deformed and I get plastics involved for either fat grafting, or if they're not up for the autologous transfer initially, then doing that later. Um, but again, you got to look at what the patient does for a living and stuff. They're not going to want to do a latissimus flap if, um, you know, if they do a lot of work at, you know, or they're very athletic. 
As we kind of build on more so the technical intricacies of this oncoplastic discussion, we do want to take a brief moment to highlight and reference actually the version 8 2021 NCCN guideline index for breast reconstruction. The link for these diagrams will be included in the podcast outline yet very briefly. And Dr. Duvet, please stop me and uh, interject if you uh, feel so inclined. They ultimately provide schematic algorithmic views and flow charts for your own reconstructive characterization of patients whether these patients presenting to either a breast surgeon, oncoplastics, or plastic and reconstructive, have already had a lumpectomy, have they had oncoplastic tissue rearrangement, reduction, or mastectomy, are they currently undergoing treatment for ongoing inflammatory breast cancer, and the best treatment for patients undergoing adjuvant radiation therapy, whether this is fat grafting, delayed flap for correction of contour defects, and or contralateral reduction with mastopexy for symmetry versus implant-based reconstruction and whether this would involve one versus two stage and the correct patient population to employ this technique in versus autologous and whether that's immediate versus delayed or tissue expander-based direct to implant or more of a tissue expander approach, whether that's prepec, partially or totally submuscular, all pending the patient's individualized chemotherapy timeline, along with the best practice for recurrent carcinoma following breast conserving therapy, even after previous radiation, and some patient factors to consider and how these ultimately affect the choice for reconstruction. They also offer a few special cases, specifically nipple sparing mastectomies and inflammatory breast cancer and other more generalized patient selection criteria and principles. So one thing that I do want to just add to those guidelines of where you see that, um, one thing that's not really talked about much is nutrition. And um, there, some of those decisions have to be based on obesity and the health of the patient and their comorbidities, uh, but also making sure they maintain good nutrition while they're getting chemotherapy uh, or during radiation treatments. Because uh, one of my plastic surgeons is very big on that and supplements them with um, you know, a dietary support system to help them through that so that they, and they do seem to heal better afterwards. Um, but it also helps you, the plastic surgeon, decide what's their best choices as well. So I, I think that I love the nutrition stuff. I think that we should be doing that a lot more for our patients um, as we, we bring them into surgery. But um, getting a little bit more into the patient experience, um, especially when you're discussing new cancer diagnoses with patients, what information do you typically give to the patients at that initial um, consultation? And when in that consultation do you bring up reconstruction? I know the patients are oftentimes getting a ton of information when they first meet you um, and can be very overwhelmed by the amount of information that they're getting about a cancer diagnosis. Um, so I, I think that most of the time, or many times they may not be ready to hear about reconstruction at that first visit. So kind of how do you build that into your discussion with the patient? So like you said, they have a lot of information they have to absorb. I mean, basically I tell residents, I've got an hour to educate someone on a topic they know nothing about, that they're fearful about. They have no idea if they're going to live or die from this. Um, So there's a lot that's more oncology-based in the very beginning. And their focus sometimes initially isn't exactly how the breast is going to look, but later on, they're going to really care how it looks. Um, so sometimes it needs to be a couple sessions in order to do that. 
Um, but if it's a, you know, a straightforward type of case, then I, and I always bring up reconstruction as an option, even if it's delayed, even for an inflammatory breast cancer. I say it's not off the table. It's just something that could be later on. Um, but, but I do, you know, I, I can also gauge it from patients that already come in that are already well-educated about it and have already done some internet searching. That's going to be a totally different discussion than someone who comes in who's not as illiterate or who is more illiterate and doesn't even understand the basics that I'm talking about. And so I have to simplify it and sometimes um, let them absorb it and bring them back. You know, it depends on their emotional state at the time too. Um, and then my question to you is, do you always have, um, do you always have your mastectomy patients see a plastic surgeon or do you kind of gauge their interest in referral to plastic surgery based on what the patient's telling you? Um, cause I know some practices are set up that every patient that is getting a mastectomy sees the plastic surgeon for a consult. And some practices are set up more that the breast surgeon is a little bit more of the quarterback of the team or the surgery team, especially at the beginning. And will only refer those patients who are, who express interest in reconstruction. So if it is going to be a mastectomy, I always encourage them to see a plastic surgeon. And I, I'm, I'm excluding the 80 year olds, obviously, or the people that aren't, you know, are not going to be eligible for reconstruction. Um, but, you know, I think by and large, what I tell them is um, if you're at all thinking that it's a possibility, usually once you learn more about it and are able to discuss it with a plastic surgeon, it will feel either right to you or it'll feel like something you don't want to go through. And I think that's just, it, it helps them make peace with whatever decision they're going to make. Mm -hmm. uh, even if they're leaning towards not doing it, I usually encourage them to meet with them. And also the, you know, the better plastic surgeons I work with also reassure them that, you know, if it doesn't, something doesn't look right in the end, you can always have something done. Um, and, or, you know, if we decide to do breast conservation, that there are options they can help later with too. So I think it's a very valuable meeting, but there's women over 70 that are just like, nope, don't want that. And that's fine. That's their choice. Switching gears now, uh, Dr. Dubay, being in your position knowing what you do, having seen what you have, do you have any real key recommendations for general surgery residents working towards breast fellowship and any advice on perhaps how they spend their time in the months and years leading up to fellowship applications? You know, I think um, like any specialty that you're going to do in general surgery, you need to, it's hard in the very beginning to decide what you want to do. But if you have interests in different things, and this is whether you're doing colorectal or breast or anything, you need to spend some time really focusing on either helping someone mentor you that does those fields, or at least uh, when you have extra time doing some of those cases, when you're allowed to, it'll do two things. It'll help you decide, is this a field I really want to go into? Um, and also it will build those relationships so you can get um, research done with them and or nice uh, referral letters or recommendation letters rather. Um, so I think those are all important things to do it all, but it, it really is in your best interest so that you realize what you're going into because this is what you're gonna do for the rest of your life. And you should also see the clinic part of it, not just the operating. I think that was my mistake when I went into trauma. <laughs> it's exciting and fun, but you know, it's not necessarily a lifestyle thing that you can maintain. 
While I am only one of many residents truly privileged to have spent time in clinic with you and your patients in the OR reviewing the very classic Dubai daily oral board scenarios, attending multidisciplinary clinics, working, learning, and operating alongside you, undoubtedly your mentorship and teaching role extends well beyond my own time as a general surgery resident. What has been some of the most impactful advice that you have given to general surgery residents? And building on this, what advice do you do you offer to really any any surgical resident to optimize their success during their training? Well, I think there are certain fields that you really have to do research in, and especially uh, fields where there's a lot of evidence evidence based medicine involved, uh, and also it, it demonstrates your commitment to the field and to you joining their residency program or fellowship program. You know, I think most fellowship programs are going to be in centers where it is very evidence-based and more university or large community centers. So if you want that additional training, um, you, you need to early on start doing some research. And it, again, it allows you to work with those specialists and get those relationships built that you really need and find a good mentor. You know, it doesn't have to be the one that your program assigned you. You can also have a second mentor that you respect and uh, think will help you build the life that you want to have. This is really about you and how you want to treat your patients and what your future life's going to be like. And sometimes our dreams change. <laughs> I, can okay. I can definitely relate to that. I had a dream <laughs> of being a hepatobiliary surgeon that had then that has now changed to being a breast reconstructive surgeon. So go for yeah. it. Yeah. But you can have two dreams. I only had two dreams, so and I fulfilled them both. So okay, life has changed. As we start to wrap up this discussion on oncoplastic reconstruction from a breast surgeon's perspective, we would like to thank you all for joining us for another successful episode on the resident review. We'd also like to extend our sincerest appreciation to our guest speaker, Dr. Linda Dubay, for sharing her time with us and providing insight that we hope will serve you and your patients well the next time you approach a patient for reconstructive candidacy, whether that be through preoperative counseling, performing the case hand-in-hand with breast surgery, or following up postoperatively for optimized patient outcomes. Please stay tuned for more knowledge-packed high-yield episodes from your Duke Plastic Surgery team at The Resident Review. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.